Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Mashia Nessa has been living with HIV for 26 years. Her story begins in Zimbabwe. Mushi, a mother of three, a church leader and with a career in finance, had a HIV test for a life insurance policy. She was 39 years old and it was 1994 before effective HIV medications were discovered and her diagnosis spelled the end, or so she thought. Today, Mushi is a social worker, has a new career as a HIV peer treatments facilitator and has found love again. Welcome, Mutti, and thank you for sharing your story on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma. Thank you, Heather. Great to, to have you here. You've got such an interesting story, so I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to this conversation we're having today. So your HIV diagnosis in 1994 would have been a complete shock for a professionally employed middle-class mother of three. What happened when the doctor told you the test result? It's the fear. If I don't remember anything, it's the fear. It's like the whole of my insides. There was nothing in there and I was going to collapse. No, it was asked for by the insurance agent. And I just said, okay, you just do it. I didn't think twice. And I said, you can tell my doctor the result. I did feel a bit of, um, a bit, uh, a bit of fear, but you see, I didn't think I would have it. You see, I didn't. It wouldn't just happen to people like me, you know. And so when the, when the doctor told me to come to his offices, I knew something was wrong. And all he said, what do you think the result is? I said, I don't know. And he said it was positive. I was shocked, stunned, silent. And he said, you know, this is a curse. This doctor was a Christian. And he said, kneel down and I'll pray for you. I don't know what he said. I don't remember the prayer. But then he said, don't talk about it. Never talk about it. And I never talked about it for nine years. Today, when people ask for a HIV test, they receive pre-test counselling. And if the test is positive, uh, post-test counselling, what happened when you had the test? Because I believe there was none of that back then. There was nothing. I don't think there was anything that he could do, <laughs> really. Maybe as a doctor, he might have talked about what he knew about HIV, but he didn't. He didn't want, and for me, he said it with such finality that I didn't think he even wanted to see me, and I never went back to him ever. So the doctor didn't give you any uh, contacts for a support group to get that peer support, to have someone to talk to at that such a scary time? At that stage, nothing. We heard about it and we had started kind of like diagnosing. We'd seen some AIDS-related uh, deaths, but we had started to diagnose people when they started to waste away. And so that's the picture that really was frightening me because I'd, I'd seen people like that. 
Well, did he mention anything about, you know, there's some new discoveries on the horizon, like they're discovering new treatments all the time, just to give you some sense of hope? None. No, the only thing that was there was a palliative care program by, by some Catholic nuns called Mashambanzo, which really prepared people for their death. And Mashambanzo, in my language, means the dawn of a new life. And so that was death. 39 years old, you know, a mother of three children. So when you went home and told your husband about this, what what happened then? I had dealt with infidelity issues some six years before when we had suffered a tragedy in our family and I then discovered infidelity. But I never linked that with HIV. I wasn't thinking that way at all. And, you know, he, we had found, we had this infidelity there, was there. And, but I discovered it within a tragedy where my husband almost lost his life through a, a road accident. He was fighting for his life and there was the infidelity. And so really... In many ways, that accident brought us more together and maybe helped me to fight through the infidelity. And it was the end of the infidelity anyway, (laughs) because... (laughs) And so when HIV came, fear was the most thing. And with a a husband who was now, he had an impairment, he could not work. And so there was no... I just told him he was not surprised, but that was it. But there was nothing we could do. We knew death had visited us. Yeah, so you didn't have that support, someone to talk to at all. And, and you you were telling me that you went to a spiritual centre and this was a, an enormous help for you, a, a, an enormous turning point in your life. So what happened there? Very much so. I, I went there to confront God. I was beginning to be angry. And my question was, how can an innocent woman have HIV. And in those days, I would say, how can an innocent woman have AIDS? And that's where I got answers in my reflections, that there's no real innocent woman. Innocence is really a a quality that would be with God, and that would be kind of like equating myself to God. That's actually when I was able to cry for the first time in my life after that, because that fear stopped me even from crying. I couldn't cry. I was just stunned, silent, emotionally frozen, as it were. And so it, there, I, realizing that there was no innocent woman, I began to see other things in my life that probably, in fact, the whole thing now turned towards me. I began to look at me and see things that were not innocent. Even if, and to me, I guess, in a very pharisaical way, adultery is the sin. And not loving, being rude, (laughs) we're not sins, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. And this is how, that was my road to acceptance. Yes. And then that gave me a sense of direction to know that now I was preparing for the end. And to this day, if people say, what, how did you go? I'll just say, my God, my faith, I kept on talking to him. My God helped me to walk because I couldn't do anything. And one thing that I had been missing was with the kind of impairment that my husband had because he had suffered head injuries. I could not really reach him as I knew him before and really talk to him and confronting meaningfully. 
I always missed that support because that had been our strength in our relationship. And now I had to go it alone. I couldn't say to my mother, I couldn't say to my siblings, I'm first born. And first born, I'm the resource in the family, not the the one that cries for help. I'm the one that who has the shoulder for them to cry on. You were not only the carer and financial provider for your three children, but also for your husband. And then both of you sort of facing this, like no future, like everybody was telling you that there was no future. How did you deal with that? What was the um, sort of decisions that you were making at that time for, for the future of your children? And Was worried about was me dying and leaving the children with their father in his impairment. That actually worried me. And uh, although we later, we walked for the next six years and he actually deteriorated faster unexpectedly because he didn't have the stress that I had. He was not capable of having the stress. And I, I think that other comorbidities that he had might have really made him um, deteriorate faster. And uh, and then he, and when he passed away, I just kept on. But the first thing was, what will happen to these children? And so this is how come we sent, I sent my son to Australia to study, hoping that maybe, just maybe, he would do well and be able to get his sisters to be with him, to be able to look after his sisters. Because I could see the tremendous responsibility, the immense responsibility of him having to look after his siblings. And that is our culturally accepted. He's still the leader of the family in our way. <laughs> in a, yeah. Did you disclose to your to your children at this time when he went to Australia, when he came here to study? No. He went to Australia. He didn't know. He was just a youngster coming to university. He did not know. I, that was just me. And I, I always say, if I had told him, maybe it would have been a barrier for him to even settle here. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether it was right or wrong. He, he may not have even wanted to leave Zimbabwe, leave you, knowing that you were ill. Yeah, and that's a decision we make, isn't it, about disclosure to, to children um, when and, and um, you know, it's, it's such a personal decision and there's so many factors that involved in making that decision about disclosure. One thing that's surprising is your husband died, I believe, in late 2000, so the, the effective HIV medications had already been around for four years. But did you know anything about those treatments in 2000? Yeah, I did because I, I said I stopped seeing this doctor. But whenever I had any you know, primary health care sort of uh, concerns with my children or myself. I'll just be hoping from doctor to doctor, avoiding any situation where they'll investigate deeper into us. And so the one doctor who was very good later gave me my second diagnosis, you know, and he talked about it. And he said, if you have lots of money, because that was the thing, access, access to medication meant you have to be rich and lay out lots of money. And so he did explain a bit some of the things now I remember when he was talking about his three medicines, three, three types of drugs working together. Now I understand the triple therapy. Uh, I, I just, I went home and said to my husband, we can't do this because every resource we have, let it be channeled into life. Let it not be given into death. And so that's how we made our decision. 
and that's how we went through it. We did take a lot of um, micronutrients, the zinc, selenium, and all that. We took that, and I believe it helped, especially for me, because I kept on working. I never, I just kept on working. You didn't start getting sick until you were, it was nearly 10 years later, like when you were 48, when you took early retirement. So that's a, you know, often it's around about five years, they say that their immune system will become quite compromised. So without being on the, on the treatment. But then a sort of miracle happened with getting access to HIV treatment. As time went on after my husband's death, I also met some people who were advocates for herbal medicine. I never took any, but they were so negative about antiretrovirals and said this ACT is a poison and it's all this. They were not really talking about the side effect. They just said it's a poison. That's all. But you know, you, 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 you hear certain things and those are things that stick in your head. All those things are poison. So I did not trust them. And in any case, I thought since people were still dying in their thousands, I just thought those people who are taking it are dying anyway. That means when you take it, you are, it's your last lap on the, on the road to death. So why spend money on it anyway? So I, one of my cardiac specialists said, can you offer, offered me antiretrovirals? I would have to pay for them. And I said, no, I didn't want because of the money. I can't afford it. So he's the same one when I was getting sick who came to me and said, there's a study that's happening. DART study, DART, D-A-R-T, Development of Antiretroviral Therapy in Africa. And they needed a, um, a sample in Zimbabwe and in Uganda because we were the epicenters of it, of HIV in our countries. And so he said, look, go along. It costs you nothing and you're dying anyway. So <laughs> what do you lose? It's free. <laughs> That's how I came. <laughs> And and they gave me, they, 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 they did all the preliminaries. And Heather, in 14 days, 14 days, I knew something had changed in my body. I was beginning to get some strength. 14 days, 10 plus 4 days. You must have been like, this is a miracle. From feeling tired and wasting away and, yeah, just to back to be having that vitality again and how the treatments were when they were newly discovered, it was like the Lazarus effect. It was. You know, people were rising up out of their deathbeds. You know, I prayed over these. I said, Lord, I'm going to take these now. That's my final. And then... 14 days. That was in July 2003. In December, the same year, I was able to enjoy my daughter's wedding. Did she know anything about you having HIV when before she was married? Yeah. By the time I started antiretroviral therapy, she knew. And I had been putting on weight. I was able to eat and keep food down. <laughs> That's exactly it. And I then said, we were told that this program would run, this research program would run for five years, and then afterwards we'd be on our own. And I said, I'm getting five years. Then I said, five years with this kind of quality of life, then that justifies any side effect. I'd rather have the side effect and have more time, especially my youngest one. My youngest one, when my husband died, she was 13, and I just wanted to be with her. 
And in many ways, I always look at her and say, this is the girl who gave me life because I, I look at her and I go, how can I leave her? How can she be orphaned? And so their dad died in, in, in December 2000. I had told their brother and held him to secrecy, made him promise secrecy not to tell the girls until I was ready. And he did. He told his uh, fiance then, and they knew they were living in Australia. They knew about that. After the death of the father and I had now started going down, I then told them in 2002, in 2003, I told them. So what happens in Zimbabwe today when someone's diagnosed with HIV? Can they get access to these free HIV medications? Yes. The World Health Organization has been funding antiretrovirals for third world countries. So the people actually don't pay for it. Sometimes people have to pay maybe a token like a dollar. They don't really pay anything for the actual antiretroviral. Once you are diagnosed, the diagnostic centers, there's um, a program called New Start, where people get their diagnosis to public health or to other clinics that are doing it, which are all public. They may be private, but they are serving as public institutions. If they are pregnant, because that's a lot. Many people find that because now it's almost mandatory because people who are pregnant, when they go for their first trimester bloods for antenatal, HIV is included. And that's how many people are finding out. And when they do that, then art is escalated because of the unborn. In Australia, pregnant women as, as well, they're, they're tested because they may have HIV and not even know it. And that's put, puts a risk to, to the baby uh, if they don't go on the medications. The access, free access to medications eliminated that fear of people going to have a HIV test because I know back in those early 90s, people were very afraid to have a HIV test because if they were diagnosed, they would just kind of will themselves to die because there was no hope, there was no medications, nothing. And so it was probably they would think, well, I'm better not knowing. Did that eliminate that fear? Not entirely. It's still there, actually, I should say. Even now, last week, because I still, people still sort of like reach out to me from Zimbabwe. I remember of one, a relative recently lost her husband, but did not know what killed him. It was very, during COVID, but it was not COVID. And he seemed to have known that he was going, so all very difficult to understand. And so, and she herself has been losing weight, so... We talked, we had an HIV talk, a, a counseling session, and she agreed to have a test, but I could see how frightened she was. And, and she tested negative, but it's just that. People still see it as a very serious condition. And also, although there's information, there isn't information as readily as we have it in the first world where people can go into the internet and read for themselves and get a link and all that. It's still word of mouth. So there are some people who actually don't understand it. I remember a woman saying to me, her two daughters had tested positive and they are on art. And they are doing well on art, but she thinks they'll just die one day, they'll just drop dead. Even though the medications are as virtually as good as a cure. Yes, that lack of education, that can be there. Yeah, just through that lack of education. And then that stimulates that stigma, doesn't it? Like ignorance and fear, just the whole stigma is very hard to, to win that fight. Your, now, your son and daughter are now working in Australia and you came here in 2018 and you ended up volunteering for Positive Women Victoria because of all your skills, because you 
were working. You're telling me you were working for the HIV organisation in Zimbabwe and working in, with peer support. Was this a, a new beginning for you? Very much a new beginning. And I still consider myself as a new beginner because it's only three years that I have been here. And But I, I knew that my life had been changed. I had become an advocate for the work of HIV. And so I... It's, it's almost like I never had, I could not even go think of finance. It's no longer what I, how I identify myself. I'm more of a social worker, counselor within, you know, and also not only for within HIV, I, <laughs> social work for other, it's, it's within HIV. And so that's why I look for them. I just look for people who did work with HIV. First, I didn't think that Australia needed me until I saw this billboard from Thorn Harbour Health. HIV is not over yet. I said, yes, they know what they're saying. It's not over. It ended up with Positive Women Victoria. You went back to university in Zimbabwe and studied social work. So you had this like new lease of life from the medications and a new beginning, a new, a whole new chapter of your life opened for you with your with your health regained. Um, so... In Zimbabwe and also Australia, just about everywhere else, there is this misconception that professionally employed, educated people do not contract HIV, but HIV doesn't discriminate, does it? It's the great equaliser. It does not. It does not. For a person who had kind of like a very educated woman in in Africa, I belong to a certain class up there. Now I realise, oh and feel the same pain that anyone else feels. And today you're a peer treatment facilitator with Queensland Positive People up in North Queensland. So what can you say about who gets HIV? While I know that the answer is everybody can get HIV, anyone can get HIV, sometimes I think that is a bit hidden for the Australian woman. I I find that it tends to have... um, it carries a stigma around sexual orientation. People who identify as gay are easily accepted as people who get it, who are at risk. Whereas everybody else doesn't seem to be thinking that they are also at risk. That's what I seem to see. <laughs> you know, when I said I'm, I've got HIV, I was at a cancer reception, cancer center reception, because I thought that was the reception for Thonaba Health. And, and I can, I will never forget how shocked that lady was. Shame, poor lady. She was so shocked. But she then recollected, she collected herself <laughs> and helped me. <laughs> because I just said it like, oh, I'm HIV positive. I'd like to volunteer. So when you say like Australian women don't sort of expect to come across HIV, is this because they just don't know about it or don't? Or maybe they go travelling or maybe they meet a, a man like on online dating uh, or something like that and they just don't even think about using condoms? They just like HIV isn't on their radar? Is that what's happening? I, I think so in some, in, in some ways because I think of my own fiancé you know, my partner, he, he didn't know it. He just says, oh, if I die, I die. But in a way, he didn't think it's, it's almost like it's a conquered foe. There's that side of it where there's so much advancement 
and it's no longer life-threatening. And, and, and it's also being classified, the heterosexual, you know, people think they're out of it. I don't know. That's, that's really, I don't know whether they think they're out of it, but I don't see a lot of awareness. The way I see that this is a fight that we are fighting. And also, I also think that Australia might also, as a country, doesn't really, I think we need to see HIV as a worldwide war. When we fight HIV, it's, I'm fighting it for myself and for the, my community. But by doing that, I'm joining a worldwide war. I, I saw that certainly with my struggle with the immigration, in that there's so much about the, you know being HIV that is, becomes even a barrier to it just is a huge barrier for migrating into Australia, and uh, it does not protect Australia because HIV does not come through immigration. <laughs> It comes through people. With the treatments, I mean, you're as healthy as the next person. While it seems that immigration feels, well, you have a chronic illness, so therefore you're going to have all these chronic health conditions later in life. But that's like not the case at all. And the cost of medications here, like the pharmaceuticals, they actually provide free medications for people who aren't Medicare eligible. So the cost isn't a factor either. It's just, it seems like um, we still have a long way to go with immigration. And um, I just want to say congratulations on being engaged and your life has done another 360 degree turn with finding love. So when you met your fiance and and then told him that you were living with HIV, what was his reaction? I did kind of prepare him, but he just said HIV. It was quiet a bit. And then I, he said, if I die, I die. <laughs> I die, I die. I'll not leave you. That's a different reaction. <laughs> and um, yeah, because he would have known nothing about, as a heterosexual man, he would have known nothing about HIV or very little, or maybe the Grim Reaper TV campaign that, oh, like, and maybe that was his reaction because if I die, I die. And so I just said to him, you, Look, I can assure you that you will not die, but I'm not the right person to tell you that. You go to your own GP and say you are in relationship with a woman who's HIV positive, who's on treatment, and tell him that her viral load is undetectable. That's all you need to tell him. And then, <laughs> then, and he went to his GP and he phoned me. He said, I went in for a normal uh, consultation and stayed there for one and a half hours. Oh, wow. So the doctor was actually knowledgeable about U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. He he knew all about that? He had just been to an, one of the Asham S100 subscriber trainings. And he said, I've just been, and this is what we were learning. And then he said, you know what he said to me? He asked me, he said, do you love this woman? And I said, yes. Then he said, you have nothing to worry about. That, that was so lucky for you. And so we have no fear. We have a relationship and we haven't got fear. And he's actually what we call in Zimbabwe a treatment buddy. He, he, is, he is my treatment buddy. He says, have you taken your meds? And I, and I say, yes, I have. <laughs> 
it would be fantastic if all GPs all around the world were like your fiance's GP. In fact, I think that GP should be the poster boy for <laughs> spreading the word about you equals you. You must feel like you were reborn again, probably several times over, because from when you were basically planning for your death, you found love, your children have gone to university, have successful careers, married, um, maybe children. Are, are you a grandmother? Of nine. Three in South Africa and six in Melbourne. Oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. And that would be something that you, back in 1994, that you would never have thought would would be possible, the life you're living today. No. My, my granddaughter, the first one, who was born when I had full-blown AIDS, I never thought I would see her first birthday. She turned 18 just last week. <laughs> that got me teary. So in a few years, you may become a great-grandmother. Oh, yeah. I look forward to that, although I don't know whether I'll get it. Young people now don't rush into this. So if you, I'd like, just like to ask you, Marty, if you met your 39-year-old self who was recently diagnosed with HIV, what would you say to her today? Interesting you asked that question because I told you that I met people who were very negative about antiretrovirals. They were also good at counselling and they actually said to me, can you write a letter to yourself 10 years from now and see, dream what you want for the future. That exercise has helped me because I would say, you see, this is where I am now. But when I say that, I don't see my life, the journey, as a series of events. It's not like that. Things were going, it was developing and evolving. So even getting a new life, even after I got my physical life, there was a lot dead in me, like my confidence to work again and to be active. And there's also the aging process. There are certain things that I can't do as well as the active 39-year-old, which I long to be able to do. But it's like I've had a gap in between where I lost some of that energy. And so I lived in Zimbabwe and there were other things, the political, the economic, all sorts of pressures and children, you know, helping children settle where they are. All that kind of like left no place for my own personal development in the sense of enjoying life again. It was a long road where I was working things out for my children and they were my reason to live. But with them grown up, now settled in their places, I began to think, and I actually began to think relationship is possible. And this has been a long process within Zimbabwe. And But I didn't find anybody that probably would have, um, whom I thought would have understood what my need for relationship, that companionship and friendship was. And I, I, it's something that I prayed for. Somebody would be excited with me, somebody who would see me as a good friend because I really would like to offer a good friendship into relationship. And in 2016, I remember doing a collage and I headed it, just the things that I saw and put there in that collage, just pictures from magazines. I just said, oh, learning to live again. That was 16 when I was saying, I'm wanting to learn 
to live again because I began to realize that things like just decorating my own place to make it more beautiful, I could leave that a curtain there and never think of changing it. I would, because I think in some ways that wonderment with life had been reduced just to the knowledge that I'm a living miracle, but the fullness of it, flourishing and having a relationship, it kind of like passed me by. Yeah, so was it the internalised stigma that really held you back for many years? I actually wouldn't know that would be something that psychologists could listen to and tell me, help me to understand what was happening. But I think there was a kind of latent grieving for the losses over the, over those years, but not something that's debilitating enough to stop me. I, I remained functional and I began to fear how I would retire. And so the longing to be in Australia came because I wanted to be near my grandchildren. I also thought I had sold all my houses to educate the children, so I had nothing to, to retire with. And that worried me. And my job was a very good job, but only managed me to keep my head above the water as it were, just to live, but not to prepare for retirement. And so that's how I began to long to be in Australia. But at the same time, I longed for relationships. So when I came and I found that the grandchildren had grown, <laughs> had grown. They, I was no longer the the babysitter that I thought I would be. <laughs> so I volunteered and then started dating, and that's how I met my 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 fiance. Mm-mm. Marty, your story that is so much truth in that saying: you will receive what you wish for. If you if you wish for something, you know, thou shalt receive it. Yeah. So you're such an inspiration for for sharing your story today. So thank you so much, Marty, for sharing your story on our stories ending HIV stigma. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together Grant Program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV's stigma once and for all? For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.